snacks. Always gets a cheer here. One day, uh, when I was like a young man in my early 20s, it was the first time I'd ever visited a really big city. And I was in Chicago with some friends, and I was wandering around the streets uh, at one point. And like I said, it was my first time in, 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 in a kind of an urban environment like that. And I came across a guy who was standing in front of uh, an alley and he was yelling at the top of his lungs. I mean, just full on, just as loud as he could and clearly arguing with, with somebody, you know, no, that's wrong. And, and when I got closer, I realized he was all by himself. Uh, and, and it was disconcerting to me. And so I did what you normally do. I just started looking down uh, and kept on walking because I didn't want to get drawn into that because I didn't know if he was right or not. But uh, years later, like in the 90s, uh, I was walking through a city again and I saw another guy standing there and he was yelling at the top of his lungs and it clearly in an argument and my mind went back to that and I thought, oh, this is another individual with, you know, issues happening here. But as I got closer, I realized he had a Bluetooth in, in his ear. And he was actually arguing with somebody on the phone. And it struck me as funny that those two guys were doing exactly the same thing. And yet only one of them would have been labeled as crazy. Uh, But you have to decide which one that would be. We're going to be reading about a person who would have been considered, you know, out of sorts uh, (laughs) to extreme extents in our study of Luke today. If you've got a Bible, if you've got a way of following along, if you'll head over to Luke chapter 8, please. Last week we read about Jesus and his disciples making it through a storm. Jesus had calmed the storm and everyone was fairly disconcerted by those events in that they were afraid of the storm, but they were even more terrified of what this meant about Jesus when the whole thing was over. They were faced with a a new reality. And we pointed out that those events served as sort of a historical parable for us, images that help us understand what it means to follow Jesus in this world, how storms and chaos oftentimes come with that adventure of following Jesus, but how those things can cause our trust in Christ and his authority to grow. Today, we're going to be moving from a natural meteorological storm to a spiritual one locally manifested in one individual. This is at the outset, I'm going to say this is, uh, can be an uncomfortable uh, story for modern Western readers because it does deal with the subject of demonic possession. Now, critical scholars will dismiss this story as just, you know, this was the ancient world's way of, you know, understanding of labeling things like epilepsy or disassociative personalities labeling those things as evil spirits we know better today. And listen, it's true. The ancients didn't know anything uh, about those issues. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of hubris in the modern world that assumes we know everything that's going on or that we can provide a plausible answer for everything because we have it figured out. Certainly, you know, if a person suffers from epilepsy, that does not indicate that they're possessed by spirits or something. But on the other side of that, just because a person presents symptoms of uh, that look like epilepsy, it doesn't automatically mean that that's all there is going on there. There needs to be space and room to consider and to, to pray about all the different aspects. There are spiritual dimensions to life that the Bible casually communicates about as though the supernatural were as natural as 
the empirical world that we understand. So as modern readers, what's important for us is we have to process this and, and, and I believe leave room for mysterious things. There's a lot of mystery. And, and as moderns, we don't like that, but we need to embrace that. We need to reconnect with uh, mystery. Uh, uh, Dr. Beck says that's, uh, you know, uh, becoming re-enchanted, reconnecting with that re-enchantment of life. So I would say typically, as Christians, we struggle to keep the balance on, on this issue of spirits and demons and the like. We either ignore this biblical claim of reality and just, you know, I'd rather not talk about that if you don't mind, you know, kind of like putting our head down and, and not making eye contact, or we seem to obsess over it. Those are kind of the two extremes the church sort of falls into, you know, ignore it or just can't get enough of it. I've mentioned before that at one time in my Christian walk early on, I fell into that latter category. I was obsessed, uh, so much so that I, looking back on it, it was almost more animist than it was Christian. I would tiptoe around not wanting to have an open door for demons or anything to oppress me or my family. And and so you had to be so careful about what you said or did or what accidentally you saw or whatever it was. It was downright superstitious and certainly not what the Bible is ever trying to inspire in our lives. We are never, ever inspired to be fearful uh, of our enemy. What we gather from Scripture is that there are forces, seen and unseen, that directly oppose God's good rule. And we're given very little information about the unseen side of that. Only, the only information that we are given ipso facto is that Jesus has complete authority over whatever it is, right? And that's the point that the Bible wants us to take away. Never fear, never a sense of fear of what's happening in the unseen realm, but a trust in Christ and his authority over the Satan, literally over the enemy. A focus on Christ and his authority um, is not going to lead us into a sense of fear, is not going to lead us into superstitious type of behavior. So as with last week's account, I believe this story that we are going to read today is something that actually happened. But I also believe that it's meant to be a picture for us, a picture of something else, uh, uh, something that, that reveals to us the, the nature of this fallen world and the wonder of our salvation, what it means uh, that God has undertaken to rescue us the way he has. And that's going to uh, be some of what we're going to be looking at today in our study. So if you're there in Luke chapter 8, we're going to pick up where we left off, uh, starting in verse 26. And we'll read this strange story. It says, so they, they being Jesus and the disciples who were in a boat, they arrived in the region of Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. Uh, just real quick, we don't really know where that is. A lot of people have tried to identify it on the map. We do believe that it is, if it's directly across from the Galilean region, then it's going to be over in the Decapolis and the Gentile region. But we don't know specifically that whatever this is, is lost to us uh, in history. As Jesus, verse 27, as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside of town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. 
The Spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. Okay, we're going to stop there for a moment. So it's quite a picture, I mean, that this paints for us. Not something that you encounter on the regular. But Jesus and his disciples, they make it through the storm on the lake. And when they get to the shore, they're greeted basically by this monster man. Uh, and, and remember, they're in Gentile territory, the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was also called by the Jewish people of that time, uh, the, the land of Satan. And so it's very interesting that as soon as Jesus and the guys show up on the beach, they have a direct confrontation with the Satan. The text indisputably attributes this man's condition to the work of an evil spirit. And if, as you, if you had noticed there in the, in the first part of this description, Something is speaking through him in first person uh, and in the singular. And that, uh, you know, in, indicates a lot to us. Uh, we call this, we would call this person a, 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 a demonized person or person suffering from demonic possession. Something co- took control of this man's mind and body and actively was working to destroy him. Um, you know, the Bible just presents this to us uh, as a reality, never with any explanation. All through the Gospels, we are presented with this as, an, as a reality, but never given any kind of details. Like, how did this happen? And like, how often does this sort of thing happen? Or any of those kind of questions that normally go through my mind, the Bible just leaves blank. So I believe the Bible was written to us to provide us all the information that we need We don't have that information, so I'm not going to speculate on these kinds of things. I don't think it really helps anything to do that. It's just the stuff of mystery. And I think it's sufficient to acknowledge as reality that there is a spiritual force and forces at work that oppose God's creative order and and is at work to destroy God's good creation. We actually don't even need the Bible to recognize that. There are influences and patterns and flows to the way this world seems to work that indicates something's going on there. In fact, when the, the man in the text, uh, he appears, he's an extreme example of what this force of evil does, how it influences people's lives. Really, th- this shows us the, the effect that sin has, the effect that sin has on all of us, all of humanity, just to lesser degrees, apart from this extreme example. We could say that isolation, dehumanization, and confinement are the signals of evil at work, the evil at work in a person's life. This is the consequence of sin that enters into the world. This is what sin does. This is the end result of of the fallen nature of humanity. Uh, This is is what happened when sin entered the world. That is, that, that God's good order was interrupted And human wisdom was exalted and things were ordered around human wisdom. That's how we're defining sin, the the exaltation of human will over against God's will. And the forces at work in opposition to God's good order bring consequences to to humanity, to the ones who were created in God's image. Uh, You know, there's a whole theology to that that we need to take time and explore. The idea that we're created in God's image and what it means Uh, What sin has done to that. So we see like, you know, isolation for this guy. This man was cut off from any sort of meaningful community. He was off hiding among the dead people, among the the tombs. 
And he was siloed then in his own miserable state. Nobody was able to speak into it, and he wasn't able to communicate out of it. You know, that's something to pay attention to then in our own lives, not indicating in any stretch of the imagination that we're describing demon possession for a person who may experience these things, but we can recognize the patterns of evil that are at work in this world and sometimes trying to influence us. If we look at our own lives, you know, and and realize that those moments when we just want to disconnect from everybody, well, I've had it, I don't want to be around anybody else, we're going to disconnect from church or or the people that love us, that's not always something good going on there. There's possibly a warning sign in that. And I'm not saying if you find yourself withdrawing from community, you know, or family or whatever, that, you know, this is a demon possessing you. So please hear that. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that it's something to take note of. If we recognize that happening in our lives, we find ourselves withdrawing from everybody because there could be an influence there from something malevolent that God never intended for us. That's not just our own natural responses to something, but there's an influence there because that influence is at work in this world. Does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? You don't have to agree with me. I'm just saying you get what I'm trying to get across in this. Okay. So when we, that that sense of withdrawal is important. The idea that this guy's isolated off by himself actually is meaningful in this story because community is all over the scripture. I mean, from the outset, God said it wasn't good for humans to be alone in Genesis 2.18. And from there, it is one long story of humans connecting with each other after reconnecting with God. That's part of the whole process. That is part of the whole salvation experience that that we go through is that reconnection with our fellow human being. So when we see those things at work, when we find ourselves withdrawing or or pushing other people away, we need to stop and wonder what that's about. That becomes an issue of prayer. What's happening here, God? Who am I following? What's what's taking place here? The other thing we see going on with this guy is dehumanization. It's another consequential trait of evil at work in this world. We could say he was living without restraint, this guy was, or better yet, doing things that dehumanized him. He wasn't living like a human being, Uh, you know? And so we look at our own lives. We look at what goes on in this world and and, in our own hearts, those urges and impulses to live without restraint, to overindulge in whatever it may be, or to escape through through, uh, substance abuse or unrestrained sexuality. There's a force at work pushing that in people's lives. This wasn't God's intent. This isn't all just human reaction to things. There's a flow and, a, and a, a force behind the fallen state of this world. We were meant for nobler things than that. We were meant to be image bearers of God, image bearers of creator God, to put on display who he is and what he's like. So we see that this is this pattern developing in a person's life or in, in, in even a societal sense. And this isolation and dehumanization for this guy ends up becoming confining. Um, and that's true that, you know, we follow those patterns, we follow those impulses and we become trapped. Like this guy was put into chains to try to, to try to curb his behavior. Uh, and so, you know, for some, I mean, that's just reality. That unrestrained pursuit of these things can sometimes end up being, uh, you know, leading to actual prison, to actual imprisonment, confinement 
by society in order to restrain that behavior. But listen, it doesn't have to just be that. There are all kinds of prisons in life, not just ones with metal bars. There's plenty of prisons. I would say that legalistic religion used to try to control these wild impulses is a form of prison and confinement. And just like with this guy, it rarely works, at least in my experiences and as I've witnessed it. It often sends people running wild without restraint, recoiling from those shackles, just like this guy, only to come back later to try it again, put on the chains of religious behavior modification, see if we can make it work this time. And it works for a little while, but then those wild impulses come and, and it's off to the races again. This guy is a picture of the consequence of our fallen state and chains of any kind are not the answer. And, and it's tragic because so much of, so much of religion, and I would even say in our modern day perspective on this, so much of it is wrapped up around trying to confine something. We gotta chain this down. We gotta imprison this. We gotta hold this back. That's the only solution. And that is not the solution, at least according to this story in this. The, the, the words that are used for chains and shackles and guarding, interestingly enough, are the same words that Luke uses in the book of Acts to describe when, when Christians were being imprisoned for their faith uh, by the Roman Empire. So it's fascinating. The language of this whole episode conveys the experience of living under the, the brutal occupying power of some dominating force. You could say like Israel experienced with Rome, but as we see from what the gospel expanded to us, like human beings living under the domination and bondage of sin and evil in this world. This then is about exile and salvation. This is what Jesus has come to provide for us. Not more efficient chains, but freedom. A humanizing grace that leads to freedom and a restoration of our humanness. God's intent for our lives is the exact opposite of the force of evil in this world. God draws us into community. God restores our sense of nobility and humanity by enabling us to live in ways that transcend those, those dehumanizing impulses. God's ongoing intent is to give life and to free us and to redeem us. That's what God's about in our lives. And we get it confused so often because we'll look at religion and we'll see those chains and we assume, well, if I'm going to follow God, that's it for my life. <laughs> and it's just the opposite of that. There's another voice trying to confuse the subject here, trying to cloud what's really going on. Jesus came to bring us freedom like he came for this guy. And here's the thing. The enemy cannot stop God from doing that in our lives if we want him to do it. And that gets highlighted in the next section. We keep reading verse 30. Jesus demanded, what's your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. The demons begged him to let them enter the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. Okay. 
I don't know if that needs much explanation. We can probably just move on. No, look, this is a weird passage. There's just no two ways about it. Uh, You know, it's always been weird to me. The exchange between these evil spiritual forces and Jesus is perplexing in, in this. Clearly, as we've already noted, there's intelligence represented in these human beings. There's something sentient communicating through them. You notice how it went from the first person, singular, to first person plural uh, as it went along here. So, and no explanation. So I got nothing for you on that. Uh, they beg not to be tortured and not sent away to the bottomless pit. Literally, it's the abyss, a mysterious destination. That phrase is used 11 times in the New Testament and 11 times without any explanation as to what we're talking about there. But, you know, uh, the word itself carries with it the sense of a disembodied freefall. That's the best way you could try to describe something like that. And Jesus says very little. I mean, he's basically saying to come out of this guy. And it's unclear whether he's asking the demons what their name is or if he's trying to talk to the guy and draw him back to his humanity. In the Greek, it's very unclear as to who Jesus is talking to in this situation. So maybe he was talking to the guy, just trying to get him, you know, coax him to remember who he is and the demons take over and, you know, chime in uh, and identify themselves. We also see that there's basically a horde of evil spiritual forces inside this guy. A legion in the Roman army uh, constituted 6,000 soldiers. So if it's a one-to-one comparison, if he's using it, you know, Legion would have carried a lot of implications for people in that day under the Roman empire. But, um, you know, if it's, if it's supposed to be 6,000, then, then how did, how did that work? How did, you know, cramming 6,000? Again, we're not told it, there's this mysterious distinction between the, the physical and the spiritual. And we make assumptions about the spiritual and time and space and and matter and and all of that. The strangest part of the story, I'm sure by far, is, you know, the demons asking not to be disembodied. So they ask permission to invade a herd of pigs who then kill themselves by running off of a cliff, thus disembodying the demons after all, which is kind of ironic. Uh, The minimal details gives us just the slightest insight behind the curtain. Some, somehow these evil spiritual forces are, are tortured by being disembodied. Why? And, and how? And again, you know, we're not told. And for me to try to speculate, honestly, when somebody gets really like precise in some sort of demonology, I get nervous because there just isn't anything in the Bible to substantiate 90% of what I hear people talking about when it comes to demons and spirits. It's, it's largely speculation. I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm not going to speculate. I'm just, I'm here to teach, and I can't teach here because I don't even know what I'm talking about. So I'm just putting it there and then stepping away and letting you guys look at it. Uh, it, you know, it, here's the thing. It's an intriguing view of first century thinking in this, because when we look at this, it's very distinct from the way we as modern 21st century people think. It's not a matter of whether evil exists, but where it will be present. Evil doesn't just vanish in this story. It must be and be somewhere, which is fascinating in and of itself. And of course, you know, poor pigs. I mean, why did Jesus let them do that? I mean, it appears to be the invention of deviled ham. Um, and I've, (laughs) 
I've told that joke so many times, I really can't make eye contact anymore, especially with my family. Um, but, but, you know, even this seems pointless and cruel for us as, as modern readers. So, uh, you know, I've studied this for years. I mean, I'm a student of the word. I have yet to find a satisfactory theory on why it went down the way it did. Something that's going to satisfy me as, a, as an American living at the time I do. But we have to keep in mind that the ancient world would not have read this like we do at all. There would have, you know, this would not have been an issue for them. They didn't, you know, they didn't have stories like Charlotte's Web or movies like Babe to anthropomorphize animals for them. And the Jewish readers would have made the clear connections that pigs had with ceremonial uncleanness. So this herd of pigs, you know, we, that's a clear indicator that they're in Gentile territory at this point. But still, it's a, it's a difficult scene to process. Here's an interesting tidbit. I'm just kind of yammering now. I hope we're okay with that. But when I was researching, so you got to go down these rabbit trails. So I'm thinking about legions and I'm wanting to make sure I got the number right on how many you know, soldiers are in a legion. And so then all of a sudden it got me going, like what legions were there in, in Israel at that time? And so I started looking at all the various legions that were planted there in, in Palestine during that. And so interestingly enough, the, the, the 10th legion for Tensis had a, an emblem on its banners and its coins and its bricks. And guess what it was? A pig. The, the 10th legion for Tensis was one that took the lead in conquering Palestine and it was stationed north of Jerusalem. A Roman legion with a pig as its emblem. So is there something that we're supposed to make out of that? Uh, or did the first readers catch something in that that it's hard to tell? I'm not sure. I'll leave that with you, kind of look at it. But what we are shown clearly is that Jesus has absolute power in this showdown. There's, there's no struggle described here from Jesus' side. There's a struggle. Uh, there's some of the human element that's drawn into this because of the man who's tormented. But the real struggle comes down to these forces of evil, not a struggle for Jesus. And as we've said before, this spiritual enemy has no power over Christ's authority. It's just a reminder then that evil cannot resist the power of God's humanizing grace in our lives if we're willing to receive it. And I love how this all goes down because in this scene, Jesus never backs down, never backs away from this crazy dude. He recognizes what's at work and he looks past the crazy to see the hurting human being who's being tormented in the midst of all of this. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, you know, just look down, watch your feet, fellas, as we go. Let's don't make eye contact like I probably would have done had I been in that situation. Jesus went straight to the man in order to bring healing to him and to humanize him. And, and this is an emphatic statement in this story because it identifies then for us when Jesus has authority over the work of evil, it identifies then who the real enemy is in this. There is an enemy at work, but it's not one of our fellow human beings like we're so quick to assume. Jesus recognized that there's this malevolent spiritual force which, which animates the work of evil in this world, that animates human greed and selfishness and violence and lust, all of the things that drag humans back into the chaos and darkness. Jesus came on the scene and he saw the evil and the pain as a symptom of the world being held captive to this spiritual evil force. 
And that force had nothing on Jesus. Couldn't, couldn't stand up to him at all. And so maybe, even as we look at that and we realize his authority over that, but where his authority is directed, not against the human being, but in taking control of this evil at work, maybe, you know, maybe instead of focusing on the philosophies or behavior of people that we disagree with in life, maybe instead of freaking out over their politics or whatever, maybe if we focused on Jesus and, and looked at his truth and his life and his light as being that which is going to overcome the evil in this world, maybe it would make a difference there. Because within this view of how Jesus is doing this, no one is beyond God's healing grace. And I think that's an important perspective for us to have as his followers. It's it's important reminder to us that the us versus them mentality that that dominates our culture today is not God's point of view. You have never met a person in your entire life. You have never met a single person that God cared nothing for. Every human being was made in his image and has the potential of of having that image reclaimed in their lives. God sees human beings in need of healing grace. And he has the total authority to deliver and to make that happen. Okay, we'll quickly move along here. I'm moving slowly. I'm sorry. The the pigs run off the cliff. They get drowned. Uh, Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been freed from demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. (laughs) Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. In another startling turn in this story, the locals gather around to see this guy who had formerly been this monster man to them, and, and now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he's regained his human dignity uh, there in front of them all, and their reaction is to be afraid. That is just, again, an ironic twist, just like, uh, you know, you'd have thought it would have been the other way around. They should have been afraid when this guy was a monster man and stoked when he was sane. But that's the thing. It wasn't the man they were afraid of. It was Jesus. And and it's just like we said last week, how Jesus introduces us to this new reality. And that can be disconcerting. Like the disciples after the storm, they were afraid of this new world. And so these townspeople, man, they had accepted the madness and the chaos of this guy. That's just the way he is. That's the way he's been forever. You know, we know how to deal with that. We chain him up once in a while and then he gets free and we chain him up again. But we got a system in place. We don't even have to worry about it anymore. They knew how to avoid him. He was just part of the world as they had known it. But Jesus comes along and disrupts that, that reality, introduces us to another reality altogether where anything is possible. And they were not into it. They didn't like that change. And it's an, an unfortunate reminder that not everyone welcomes God's grace. It's likely that the locals were 
also upset uh, by the loss of these pigs because it represented a serious financial loss for them as well. Of course, it would have. Um, And that in itself becomes a parable for this world's system because how often do we see money get valued over human life? That's like a constant that goes on. For some people, the idea of God's grace invading this world and healing and setting things right, that's a very unwelcome thought. Because, man, there's a system in place, as I said. We got ways of navigating this, and, you know, I have a lot of money to make in the process of all of this. They like the world just as it is. They don't want any sort of reality that Jesus offers in this. And we'll see that Jesus does not push back or argue. Jesus doesn't call them all names while he's there. Well, you bunch of unbelieving, rotten pig lovers, what's, you know, what's wrong with you? He doesn't do anything like that. He didn't start a grassroots movement to get the laws of the land changed so that he's free to be there if he wants to be no matter what. He doesn't force himself on the unwilling. Very important lesson for us. Oh, he has complete authority and power. What the work of the enemy does, man, it has no ability to stop Christ's authority and his power. But if a person's unwilling, alarmingly, That makes a difference. No, instead it says that Jesus gets in the boat and sets out for home. I don't know. That's just a, that's a troubling verse to me. Jesus doesn't force his grace, but that still reminds us. That's a lesson for us today. Our role out here, we're not combatants. We're not out here trying to force anybody into anything. We are beggars who found food and are trying to show other beggars where that food is. But you know what else? This seems to indicate that Jesus' purpose for being there in the first place in that territory is completed. He's willing to leave because, well, I did what I was here to do. And that would mean that the whole reason Jesus wanted to go across the lake, face that storm and do all of that other stuff was for this one man. And that is an impressive revelation about the scope of God's grace towards humanity. One dude was the focus of Jesus's mission here. You know, I mean, you know, again, on the larger theological impact of this, it does give us a picture of God's kingdom, including the Gentile peoples as well. But I just love that it plays out with one individual who was suffering like this. So Jesus gets in the boat. We'll keep reading verse 38. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with them, but Jesus sent him home saying, no, go back to your family. Tell them everything God has done for you. So he went through the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. Interesting juxtaposition there. So the same guy who who was screaming at Jesus when he arrives is now upset that Jesus is departing. So we see kind of the the rhythms of irony in, in this story. This guy wants to go with Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus denies his request. Says, nah, you go home. <laughs> That's intriguing. Most likely, this is my theory on this. You can take it or leave it. I believe he's in Gentile territory. I believe this guy's a Gentile. And I think that's the reason that he wasn't going to allow him to come with him. God had an order to how he was going about this, this invasion of the kingdom to the Jews first and then to the Gentile people. So Jesus knows the Gentiles are going to have their chance in, in this. And, uh, and, and, and the thing is, is if Jesus would have added a Gentile 
into the mix of his disciples, he would have spent the rest of his time trying to defend that action and, 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 you know, trying to change people's minds about the Gentiles. It would have changed the entire focus of his mission at that point. He knew before long, the Gentiles are going to be included a few years from then. Uh, And so in advance of that, Jesus deploys this one guy and activates him in mission to go out there and go tell your family what God has done and how merciful he's been. It's a simple message, and it's the same message that the early church uh, went forward with, and the early church changed the world. And so we recognize here that God's healing grace in our lives comes with a commission to share that grace. He wasn't called to just stay home and be comfortable. Jesus didn't say, nah, just stay home, kick back, you know, things will work out. Remember, <laughs> it's not going to be comfortable anyway because this guy's family knew him as a monster, remember? So I imagine you know, there was some serious apologies. I had some fence mending to do along the way. You know, hey, you remember when I literally tried to bite your head off? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, you stay over there. I mean, I, you can imagine it's going to take some time for everybody to believe that he's really changed. And he had to live the change in his life as well as describe what it was that happened there. But the message was simple. Talk about what God has done for him. Um, and it's an interesting choice of words since the man mes- man's message was all about what Jesus had done for him. So there's a connection that Luke wants us to catch there. But this is our commission too, to talk about what God has done to us, do, done for us through Christ uh, with the people that are closest to us, our families, our friends, our co-workers, and see where he goes from there. Jesus only sent this guy to the people closest to him. But from there, he branched out and he reached the entire town. And it started with a simple commission. Go home and show off what God has done. I mean, it's, it couldn't get simpler than that. Sometimes I think we don't want to share our faith. We get afraid because we're worried, you know, somebody's going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. What if somebody asked me about predestination or the book of revelation. I don't understand those things, much less want to talk about it with anybody. But the thing is, we have to ask ourselves, what sort of theological basis did this guy have in our story to go out and share anything with anyone? What did he know of Jesus when Jesus commissioned him? Did he know Jesus as God? Maybe just the way he was wording things in there, but did he have a concept of salvation as we define it today? And what would it have meant to him as a Gentile uh, in light of the Jewish understanding of salvation? He wasn't told to go and warn people that they're going to hell. He didn't have to memorize the four spiritual laws or print up a bunch of tracts to get armed with. No, his mission was simple. I was hopeless. I was broken. And Jesus gave me a new life and new direction. And he could do that for you if you wanted him to. And that's what we're commissioned to share as well. We're just called to tell our story, to be prepared to explain why we are the way we are, which can be a good thing or a bad thing sometimes. But why can you be loving in the midst of all this hate? How can you show grace to someone who's mistreated you? Why aren't you afraid to love the unloving? Christianity is more than just coming to church to receive from Jesus and be able to praise God in community. It also involves returning to the world and declaring our experience with God, even to a world that has often mistreated us. God has been so gracious to us. Let's awaken to our commission to go and spread his grace to the world around us. Right on? Let's take this in as our own commission 
as we reflect and remember what it is that Jesus has done for us. Listen, um, I just want to remind you next week in cooperation with all of the churches that are involved in Pastors United of Bay County, we're going to begin a four-part four series, a short series. Uh, so we're going to take a break from Luke for a little bit. We'll come back where we left off when we pick it back up. But it's going to be a, a, a series on on the biblical mandate behind racial unity and why it's so important and why it is going to be impactful for society as a whole when we as the church regain uh, that witness. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited. We'll share with you the information about the other churches that are doing this and you can see how it is that they're covering these subjects as well. It's all going to conclude with a unity service at Sheffield Park at four o'clock on June 13th in uh, Lynn Haven. So uh, we'll, of course, be making a lot of announcements for that. So why don't you stand with me, if you will, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can learn from it. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, will, will reinforce the truths of your word in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that we have nothing to be fearful of in this world. That you, because of your great authority and your transcendent power, have secured us so that no matter what happens in this life, we know that nothing separates us from the love of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, that armed with that realization of who we belong to and where it is that we're going, that we can have the boldness to, to act as agents of Jesus in this world, to share that humanizing grace with the world around us, with the people that we know, whether they're people that like us or don't like us. Help us, Father, be agents of your grace wherever we are. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.